Hello and welcome to Hellas for Hyphenates for April 2017. I am writer hyphen, rest in peace, Jonathan Demi, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Writer hyphen, hashtag I'm writing hyphen, what is the cinema? Sophie Mayer. <laughs> it's, uh, I just realised my rest in peace made it sound like I had also died. Um, I just want to assure everyone I have not, as far as I can tell... I'm doing fine. Um, I can so totally just... vouch that this is not a recording. <laughs> I mean, it will be by the time it will be, you're yeah. listening to it, but ah, uh, yeah, no, it was really uh, sad to hear about um, Jonathan Demi, someone who seemed like they would just keep inventing new ways to make films forever. Mm, and hopefully we'll get to talk about him uh, one day soon on the show. Uh, but for now, we are um, going to be joined a little later in the show by our guest, Scott Weinberg. But until then, we're going to talk about a few of the films that have come out this month. Somewhere. Somewhere. In the world. Don't know if it's the UK or Australia or America, but somewhere these films have been released. The The first film I want to talk about is the sequel to Disney's, Marvel's, James Gunn's Guardians of the Galaxy, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. This one picks up only a few months after the last film. Usually there is a gap of... Like, the, the gaps are usually in real time. If it's been three years since the last Captain America film, then it's three years later. But this one is only a few months later, and so we've got the group fairly well established, but still in their early days. Uh, Groot is now a toddler running around. Uh, the team is basically uh, basically established themselves as heroes for hire. And the film focuses heavily on the mystery of... Peter's father. Uh, it was a, it was a big mystery in the first film. Here, it is pretty much resolved immediately when Kurt Russell appears out of nowhere and says, "Peter, I'm your father." So that's uh, that's that mystery done, like out of the way, right up front. Is he wearing an eye patch? I look. I don't think he is, but I feel like he is. Like it's one of those things where if you don't put an eye patch on Kurt Russell, he's still kind of wearing one because it's Kurt Russell. Um, Very metaphysical, yeah. Yeah, but he plays Ego the Living Planet, who is literally a planet, but can take human form. And this explains why Peter is not human in the few mysteries from the first film. Somewhat controversially, I think, I'm not sure if this is a controversial opinion yet, because I haven't read many other reviews, I still kind of prefer the first film. I, I know the rest of the world is sick of origin stories, and I totally get why, but I'm still a sucker for them, because... I, you know, uh, I won't go into why now, but um, I, I essentially I like seeing a team come together, and this is very much a team film. But these are very well-drawn characters, and Gunn is really interested in their journeys more than anything else, which is what makes the film work. I think rooting all of the action scenes in humour is also a secret to this series' success, because, and again, it might just be me, I tend to get bored in action scenes, even the most well-choreographed ones, I don't know, I, I feel like essentially we're just waiting to watch villains get dispatched, and I feel like we can just sort of fast forward to the point at which they're all dispatched. Uh, there are a lot of exceptions to this, but what I like about uh, Gunn's action scenes is that they make me laugh. Like, the set pieces will make me laugh, and making me laugh is, is a good thing. It draws me in, and so I have a lot of fun with his films. I'm totally, I, the film comes out here tomorrow, so I've seen a couple of reviews of it, but I haven't, 
I never get invited to the actual big screenings. I'm totally there for the idea of a, a sort of superhero film about fatherhood, mm. having these two contrasting fathers, you know, like Ego, the planet, which I think is how a lot of people feel about their dads, quite frankly. <laughs> um, and then, you know, Baby Groot uh, and his more perhaps sensitive fathering. I think, you know, that that is kind of really fascinating to me as something to do with these like super masculine stories and then I lo- I really like the sound of Elizabeth Debicki's um, gold covered it's like this <laughs> sort of super tacky 70s idea of like the gold queen but played with this very cool Elizabeth Debicki awesomeness I don't mm. know I, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth there no no I, that's absolutely right and just on the Debicki thing like uh, Australians are now sort of the villains of the Marvel cosmic universe after that amazing Thor trailer with Kate Blanchett and the, and the antlers. I did not know I was into antlers until I saw that trailer, but uh, apparently this is where we are. But um, yeah, DeBecky's De amazing. And, and, and you're right. Like it is the fatherhood thing is explored way more than just, you know, Kurt Russell's character in, in one unexpected way. I won't spoil, but it, it actually quite digs quite deep into what fatherhood means and and yeah the entire group sort of being parents to Groot uh is is very very funny you've also got Gamora and uh Nebula uh, sort of the, the sibling rivalry between these sisters and that's rooted in the fact that their father is Thanos the 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 big bad of the Marvel universe and so the the theme permeates every plot line in a in a really interesting way and baby Groot is exactly as engaging and adorable as you think. I mean, the the opening sequence is centered around baby Groot, and it is easily the best opening sequence of any Marvel film ever, and possibly any comic book film ever. It's an all-timer. It is so funny. Like, it's a shame that Groot is going to grow up, and I, I, you know, have a feeling that future films will show a, a, a larger Groot, you know. Teenage Groot. Teenage Groot, exactly, because there is a lot of... Picking arguments. ...comic gold to be mined from baby Groot running around, and you could probably get about five films out of it. Yeah, I mean, it's got a little bit of a weird structure to it. Uh, Peter and Gamora basically spend the first half of the film just kind of hanging out, and I'm not sure I mind that. It's, it's, it's a very odd choice, but, um, but it kind of works. If you're sort of embracing the episodic style of franchise filmmaking, and you don't just want to see the standard action, see- action film structure, you want to see your characters take a beat and just hang out and talk and you know that is that is a desire people have from from char- with characters they like and so yeah it's 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 a fun film i'm still i think i'm still more a fan of the first film but there is uh there is a lot of fun to be had in volume 2 does the soundtrack i mean volume 2 makes it sound sort of like quite prog so uh, i'm curious about whether the soundtrack stands up because the first film was so much about the use of music Mm, absolutely. I mean, it's it's kind of interesting that these the the Guardians of the Galaxy films have sort of picked up where Tarantino left off, where he was he you know certainly everything I know about seventies music basically comes from Tarantino films <laughs> and uh, and their soundtracks. And now I'm getting that same lesson from Guardians of the Galaxy, and they and they are really embracing that idea with yeah, as you say, with the volume two moniker by saying, yeah, this is the second mixtape. This is a whole yeah. bunch of songs which uh, thematically and aesthetically tell the story that we're telling. So, 
There's a lot of great music in here, a lot of which I was unfamiliar with until I'd seen the film, but it's uh, it's probably, yeah, a soundtrack worth picking up. So, yeah, now that's, uh, that, that's Guardians of the Galaxy 2. I really, really wanted to see the film we're about to talk about, but it's not out in Australia until later this year. I don't even know if it has a set release date, so I have been unable to score a copy uh, for, despite all my begging of local distributors. But um, you have seen the uh, James Baldwin documentary, I Am Not Your Negro. I have, and there's literally no way to make a smooth transition between Guardians of the Galaxy <laughs> 2 and I Am Not Your Negro, which I think, you know is directed by Raoul Peck, uh, the Haitian um, feature and documentary director, who's probably, I think, best known for his biopic of Lumumba, starring Alex Deca uh, from, two, gosh, 2000. Oh, that's a long time ago. Um, but it is better known in the US for his documentaries, and this one in particular was shortlisted for the best documentary at the Academy Awards, up against a very, very tough shortlist that reflected a renewed interest in and commitment to telling african-american stories so it was alongside oj made in america and 13th over duvernay's film and it's an amazing place for for an essay film to find itself uh, on the the shortlist at the academy awards this is a very intense layered film um it mostly consists of well a combination of two things footage, archive footage of James Baldwin talking uh, on television shows. Yes, the, you, there was an era when <laughs> intellectuals got to go on evening chat shows. Mm. Um, and that that footage is just absolutely fascinating. This Here's someone who's incredibly comfortable with themselves, with their politics, talking in ways that reach out to the wide audience that he knows is out there, but never censoring himself. He was very abrasive, very witty. Um, I think that's, you know, even though I've I've read James Baldwin, that wasn't something that had necessarily come across to me from reading his fiction. He was just an extremely funny, generous person and introduced these ideas of deep seriousness to uh, a broader audience. So um, I Am Not Your Negro is the title of a book that he planned to write, or rather it draws on a book that he planned to write uh, about the lives of Malcolm X, uh, Martin Luther King, and Medgar Evans, three African-American leaders who, were, who he knew uh, and who were assassinated uh, one after the other. So it's a film of deep sorrow that centres around the lives of these four men and their connections with each other in the film. I think one of the things I really liked about it is it hints, I think, at the fact that Baldwin was also exploring what was erotic about those connections. He was an out gay writer, and I think particularly with uh, Malcolm X, there was a very strong connection that he felt to this young, charismatic man who was also a writer, and, and they read each other's work, and so that was very delicately done and, and really mm. extraordinary. So the evidence of that project is is given in voiceover, which is um, read by Samuel L. Jackson, uh, and just an extraordinary. He doesn't try to channel Baldwin. They're very different. Um, their voices are very different. But he's Samuel L. Jackson. He's an African-American thinker delivering this material in this historical moment. And you sort of feel his connection to Spike Lee. It's great. It's so rare, to, as rare as it is to sit in like a Disney Marvel film and think, my God, this is actually funny. It's witty. It's, you know, not talking down to its audience. It's not trying to make a drama out of a crisis. To sit in a film and just listen to someone think 
someone absolutely brilliant and Baldwin is just devastatingly brilliant. I was sitting during the film taking so many notes of, of things that were being said and passing by so quickly but you really need like the whole, I can't just sit here and read them out, you need the whole texture of them because he speaks in paragraphs and just getting that in a film is so it's sensational and the politics the film cover is something that we all need to know about and look about look at again you know it really does fit with the 13th and um oj made in america and it's just it's like an incredible moment in in documentary making at, at the moment speaking to this black lives matter flashpoint but by going back and and doing it through someone who really was part of the mainstream of american culture is a black gay intellectual who never spoke in pieties he always took the most thoughtful most complex positions and it's just a beautiful uh an incredibly moving film and it's so incredibly made by Raoul Peck and uh and his researchers who recovered this tv footage they recovered um some film of him giving a lecture in the UK as well as a lot of archive footage uh archive photographs uh of the time he spent uh, around the world in different places including Haiti which is part of Peck's connection to him and it I hope it does come out at some point in Australia. Mm. I know that as the same in the UK, there's an argument like black films don't sell, films about black people really struggle. And it's up to us as viewers to make the case that that's not so by uh, telling distributors to get films out there, tweeting about them and then going to see them on opening weekend. I have no doubt that it will probably appear on Netflix yes. uh, <laughs> soon after that. but. Which it would is, be a great segue if we weren't going to talk about another film. Uh, I know, <laughs> but it is also a film. Like I saw it in a full cinema and people, there was a round of applause at the end and it just felt like such a, it's a very live moment. Like You really feel that you're there with this incredible presence. So mm. I can't recommend it highly enough, which is painfully ironic if you're not able to see it. See Le Mumbo on DVD while you're waiting because it's a really um, impressive biopic and... I mean, Alex Descartes is incredible in everything. Sure. No, I, I cannot wait to see this um, film. And uh, yes, keeping my fingers crossed for a local release in some form or another. Um, so, uh, yeah, a, a, another film out this month. Uh, it's, it's a bit of a celebration because it doesn't happen very often. Uh, there is a new Warren Beatty film, both as actor and director, both very rare events. Rules don't apply. Uh, did you have a chance to catch this uh no one of the rules that doesn't apply to it is it having an actual decent it's a limited release in the uk and mm. i just have struggled to find a screening also the rule that does apply to this film apparently is that for every 70 year old male star who is also the director there must be an equal and opposite 20 year old ingenue with whom he has a sex scene <laughs> well actually well yes there is a sex scene it is actually decidedly non-explicit but also quite important to uh to the characters uh so i would i would certainly mark it down as a non-gratuitous scene so basically this is this is a passion project uh for, for Beatty about so many ways uh, yeah well yes about howard hughes and even though Beatty is decidedly older than Hughes was at this point in his life. He, he plays the the elder uh, Howard Hughes, who is uh, considered, as we see in the opening scene, considered by many to be maybe losing his mind a little. 
so he's got a stable, Hughes has a stable of young actresses that he is uh, assigned to contract, but they're all doubtful that they will ever appear in a film. Uh, they're not entirely sure what it is they're doing there, uh, why he's got them all under contract. We follow one young woman who is uh, is not prepared to do what perhaps some of the others are prepared to do. She is uh, very, very chaste and uh, very religious and wants to be in movies, but will happily go home to small town USA if it doesn't work out the way she wants it to. Hughes has just hired a new driver and the driver, the very strict rule for the drivers, they're not allowed to fraternize with the actresses that they're driving around. And of course, this young driver played by Alden Enron Reich. Have I got that right? Uh, the new Han Solo, basically. <laughs> Let's just call him Han Solo. It has Han Solo. Syllables. Yes. And uh, uh, he and the young actress played by Lily Collins uh, fall in love. As, as you do. And they have to figure out, sort of, they have to navigate these rules uh, that have been imposed on, upon them and decide between, you know, career and heart. And, uh, okay, I don't know if I'm selling it particularly well. I, I, I think I've liked it more than most people have. I, I, I did kind of adore it. I think Beatty enjoys playing someone who is unhinged and divorced from normal societal rules, like with Bullworth, uh, the last film he directed. And, and I think this, this works for him. He's sort of got this weird energy that pushes back against, like, he can be a little insane, but because he is Warren Beatty, you're not quite sure. You know, it's different than if Steve Buscemi played this character. You'd be like, you know, don't make eye contact, back away slowly to the door. But because it's Beatty, there's something really kind of, you're like, oh, well, he's a handsome movie star, but he's behaving really erratically. And I kind of like that form of Warren Beatty. But I think there is a much deeper film in here than it appears to be. I think he's really interested in the idea of people breaking rules. Uh, and as per the title, it almost makes it the ultimate Warren Beatty film because you've got people hmm. who break rules of law, rules of your employer, rules of your religion, rules of your family. And I think he's really interested in that as both an actor and, and a director. And so this film sort of feels inevitable where every character is pushing against the many rules being imposed upon them. So, yeah, I look, I, I really enjoyed Rules Don't Apply, and it's a shame we don't have more Beatty films, but... Oh, I should mention, there are four editors credited, which I find wow. interesting, not just because he apparently spends decades editing each film, but it's got a really interesting editing style to it. It's it's a film a, sort of about old Hollywood, but not really. I mean, it's set in the 60s. We don't see a lot of filmmaking or a lot of movie stars. It's just sort of people talking about movie stars and filmmaking. But every scene cuts off really quickly. Like, there's no time wasted at the end of a line of dialogue where bang into the next establishing shot or the next scene, which I find reminiscent of a certain type of old Hollywood editing where they would just jump straight into the next scene. There wouldn't be any sort of long, drawn-out coda. I don't know whether to ascribe that to Beatty's own notorious post-production schedule or whether they were deliberately going for something that felt like this kind of idiosyncratic callback to 
how movies used to look, how they used to feel, and what, what sense you would get watching them, where you would sort of careen from scene to scene. And, and I think uh, Collins and Han Solo are both fantastic. I think they're both, uh, they've both got a tremendous <laughs> amount of charisma. Han Solo and Phil Collins' daughter. <laughs> it's, it's throwing my brain. And I think it's, when you say idiosyncratic throwback, it's worth remembering that Warren Beatty has, in fact, been involved with cinema, if not since the kind of early 60s films you're referring to, then mm. certainly not far off them. And, you know, he um, has been directing almost as long as that. And in fact, his first film was uh, Splendour in the Grass in 1961. So it does go all the way back to that classic era. On that point, I just want to, uh, like, I, I think people who know me uh, should note that I have maybe never brought up Doctor Who in this podcast, and I deserve credit after seven years for avoiding that. But I want to bring it up now because it actually relates to this film and something you just said. Because okay. one of the one of the last stories they did in I think uh, I think it was 1988, they did a story called Remembrance of the Daleks, which was set in 1963. And they did it as a period piece because, of course, they had to because it was the late 80s. And I found that absolutely fascinating that the the show had been running in an unbroken stretch for 25 years at that point and had been running so long that to reference its own history, it had to do a period piece. It was itself the period piece it was recreating. And I found it really interesting to watch it sort of be both things at once, be new and old and modern and past. And... I wonder how you do that as a director. Mm. You're making a film, a period film, where everything is so old, but it's about something you remember. It's about your history. Yeah, something you experienced yeah. as an adult. Yeah. That's fascinating. I kind of wish I'd, I'd watched it with that in mind, because of course, yeah. I mean, Beatty actually made, wanted to make this film after seeing Howard Hughes himself in a hotel foyer, and he became obsessed with, with Hughes as a character which is why it's been such a long gestating uh, passion project. But yeah, of course, yeah, um, Beatty experienced the period that he is now referencing in this very nostalgic way. I actually thought you were going to say there was an episode of Doctor Who in the late 80s where it was set in 2017 and the joke was that Warren Beatty was still a director because <laughs> after Reds, no one really thought that was going to happen. His, his three and a bit our epic about um john reed and emma mm. goldman and american communism that extremely popular subject in 1981 <laughs> uh, which i i think is a fantastic film and you know it's the 100th anniversary of the russian revolution like this year and we're going to hear a lot of celebratory and investigatory stuff about it and i think reds is actually a a pretty good introduction to how some of that politics was seen and, and why there were some Americans who, who did care about it. And, you know, it also has that very talky style where, you know, scenes are quite theatrical. You get a lot of talking, then it cuts and it goes on to the next one. It's a really epic film, but certainly in 88, you know, <laughs> had that Doctor <laughs> Who episode existed, Dick Tracy was still two years away and no one really would have believed that would be the Warren Beatty comeback. So the fact that... You know, he then made Bullworth and he's now back with this this film, as you say, about film history, about the, the cinema he 
grew up in where there were stables of actresses like Natalie Wood, who uh, appears in Splendour in the Grass, um, mm. who were sort of groomed by the studio, tortured by them, uh, subjected to all sorts of terrible contracts. And then he went through the whole New American cinema. And so to have him looking back on that, while weirdly casting himself as Howard Hughes is a little odd, but, um, you know, to learn more about that Hollywood that he's seen, I think... I hope he speeds up and, and makes another film. It would be great to see the Warren Beatty film about Hollywood in the 70s, you know? Absolutely. A few weeks ago, an article by David Ehrlich in IndieWire discussed the role of Netflix in the ever-changing world of film distribution. Netflix, he says, may on the surface... Uh, seem to be the perfect distribution model delivering independent and difficult to find films directly to your home, but the nature of the distribution and the exhibition may rob it of its status as a movie. He argues that watching a film on a computer screen in your room instead of in a darkened cinema where your attention is complete is like a museum locking a piece of art in a vault and distributing photocopies. So the question, is this the old cinema versus home theatre snobbery given a new face? Or is Ehrlich correct? Is this a fundamental change to how we watch movies? To discuss this and more, we are now joined by our special guest, film critic Scott Weinberg. Scott, welcome. Thank Hi, you. Scott. Thanks for having me. Hey, uh, thank you. Thank you both for having me. I, I, I'm excited to, uh, to discuss this topic. Well, it's our pleasure. Um, what, what is your take on this? Because uh, you obviously watch a lot of films. Yeah. Um, you know... Uh, David Ehrlich is a great writer, and I find that more often than not, I disagree with a lot of his essay uh, opinions. <laughs> there, there are a few points in this article that I agree with wholeheartedly, uh, but for the most part, I really admire uh, his thesis. Uh, but in a practical sense, that's just not how distribution and exhibition can work anymore. There are infinitely more movies than there are screens, and that means that either... You can only see the stuff that, that plays your multiplex or your local art house, and everything else gets just sliced off because th that means if it doesn't play in a theater, then that's it. No, no, no VOD, no Netflix, no Hulu, no streaming, no maybe direct-to-video. I've seen plenty of horror movies that, that, that are pretty darn good that wouldn't play in theaters but are still, uh, you know, find, find an audience on, on either VOD or DVD. In a perfect world, yeah, films would be watched with a receptive, respectful audience, and everybody would get the most out of that communal experience. That, that really is, in large part, what the beauty of movies is all about. On the other hand, there are some people who just want to go, oh, these movies, I just want to see them, and I don't really need the communal experience right now. I can watch it with my husband or my wife on our nice big screen television through Netflix, and we'll either like the movie or we won't, and that'll be that. I just think there are so many more movies than there are screens that David's, you know, his thesis doesn't really hold water in a practical sense. Mm. I've recently had quite a bruising experience of dealing with Netflix as a curator. I'm, I'm not going to name any names, like all the individuals have been really nice, but if you want to screen on a big screen a film that Netflix has bought, it is very difficult to get them to talk to you. So while I totally agree, Scott, with what you're saying about release patterns, we're up to like 25 movies a week here in the UK on general release, limited release. It's, you know, it's super intense. The level of secrecy around how Netflix and Amazon are making purchasing decisions, how they're making release date decisions, and then just finding the damn films on their systems. There's no public Netflix database that you can scroll through and decide whether you want to buy Netflix. I, you know, 
know, there's some great websites, obviously, that uh, are giving you insights. But so from both of those angles, if you're excited about a film, say a film that's won an award at Sundance and you want to get it out there on the big screen, or if you just want to find the film on your TV, the endless frustrating scrolling of you may like this because you like hats on on the <laughs> Netflix system buries films. They a, a friend who's a documentary critic described Sundance to me as a Netflix bloodbath that they bought so aggressively. No one else even had a chance to jump in there and perhaps take a film like 20 Feet from Stardom to the, the Oscars. So I worry that there's future award winners, future career-defining films like Sydney Freeland's uh, Deirdre and Laney Robert Train that are getting bought, getting dumped on Netflix really quietly, no big announcement, and that's it for that director. That, there, there I agree with you. See, I don't necessarily agree with the, with the phrase dumped, but I do totally agree that they spend good money, decent money, you know, to buy these films, and then it's like, yeah, it comes out next Friday. It's like, uh, for example, the film um, with Melanie Linsky and Elijah Wood called I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore. Now, that's a really interesting movie. I liked it very much. Now, if that, got play, if that played in limited release in the States, it would play you know, in, in, in a handful of theaters in major markets. It would lose money, and then it would be shuttled off to DVD and or VOD. And I, I think Netflix just is like, hey, you know what? If, it, if a little movie like this is, is not going to make any money, where's the logic in putting it in theaters? And I'm not saying I necessarily agree with that argument, but I think that might be where, where that uh, business sense or that business um, plan comes from. I wonder how much of this could be down to like whether we're uh, sort of arguing two different things at once, one which is the streaming model and the other is the Netflix model specifically. I'm, I'm wondering if the sorts of people who will want to seek out these more obscure films might be drawn to a streaming service such as Mubi, a curated film festival sort of uh, that streams directly to your computer and changes its lineup, but but really features its uh, its its lineup and and sort of aggressively tells you what it's got on that month. So uh, yeah, I, I wonder if maybe having more streaming services. You know, if, if Netflix sort of sticks to, it's got its big films, it's got its big TV series, because everyone I know, when they talk about Netflix, the first thing they talk about is the TV shows you can binge on there. So, yeah, I wonder if maybe that's the answer. I think we probably would all agree that whether or not you agree that it's great that Netflix is buying a lot of independent films, I think we'd all agree that they really do need to do a better job of marketing and selling those movies to an audience. Netflix mm. did not do nearly enough work selling that film I just that I just mentioned. And I'm sure we could all think of films that premiered on Netflix and you think, this is really good. Why hasn't this gotten more press? Why haven't I seen some banner ads? Why, haven't, why aren't they treating these like actual films? And I think David's point is they're just treating it like product that they're throwing it on a shelf. And film is not, it's product in a way, but it should still be treated like art. You know, you should still give it a push and give it a chance. Don't just release it on a Friday and be done with it. Mm. I can totally see a future Dave Eggers novel that has a character in it whose job is Netflix curator. You know, they're, they're someone that you would hire specifically. I'll do it. Yeah, right. I know. I'm saying I could totally do that. So it's It'd not be a fun just job. The, right. The water cooler big drops, but you know, the person who's like, but personal obsession here, have you caught that 48-part historical Turkish TV drama? You should watch that and then follow it with the great new Elijah Wood movie. You know, it's the, that kind of personal service that maybe 
is selling that kind of contact with curation and decision making and they bring in all sorts of outside curators to write about their films and and pick them and I can imagine yeah. Netflix investing on that on the headline, but then having like the equivalent of like essay factories, like people just turning out personal Netflix curation for viewers because the algorithm yeah. doesn't work. Well, I mean, they spend so much money on these movies. They spend a lot of money on a lot of films. You would think they might have like a sub a website just dedicated to their films, you know? Yeah, think. One more point that Ehrlich uh, raises that I, I, I want to ask your opinions on is a movie still a movie if it premieres on VOD or are we talking about something entirely different? If we take the cinema out of the equation, is it now an entirely new beast? How are we still having this argument, you know, 40 years after video? <laughs> you know, this argument's been going on for thousands of years since someone said, is it still a story if it's written down? You know, Plato was worried that writing things down would make us lose our memories. And it's like every new technology that comes along, people worry it's changed the essence of the experience. Like, it's Damn, exactly what Scott, Scott was saying. People want to have multiple different experiences. You go to the multiplex, you go to your art house, you rent a DVD with friends, you watch something at home because it's easy, you watch something on your phone when you're stuck on transit. It's all still cinema. We understand that. I totally agree. I, I could probably name on one hand the amount of times I've watched a movie or a TV show on a phone-sized screen. But knowing that I have that option makes me happy. I like that. Would I sit down eight people and put on The Incredibles in front of on a phone? Hell no. But, uh, I mean, I made a movie that will be coming out later this year. It might play in theaters, and it might not. I literally do not know at this point. It's called Found Footage 3D. And it, it's still a movie. Uh, no, <laughs> No matter where it plays, if it plays in 10 theaters or if it goes straight to VOD or DVD, it's still a movie. You're not going to tell me my movie's not a movie because it didn't get a traditional theatrical release. That's all. So, found footage 3D coming to you in some form or another this year. <laughs> it played at Fright Fest it. and it went over really well at Fright Fest. I, I will forever be grateful to London for how well they treated our movie when it played there. Oh, well, Fright Fest is a really special they're Special great. Uh, I yeah. love Paul and Ian and Alan. They're all great guys. Well, hopefully it will make its way back here in one form or another. So, Scott, please tell us, which filmmaker have you selected for your Filmmaker of the Month? Well, when you, when you told me to pick a filmmaker, you know, I'm, I'm like most movie geeks. You know, I, I could run through eight or ten filmmakers that I just, I love. I've seen all their films. Uh, but I wanted to pick somebody who has done a, an interesting mix of TV and films, mm -hmm. and uh, who would be uh, uh, familiar to your listeners, of course, and who makes a lot of fun stuff, and who I've met, and I'm sure you have, and is just a ridiculously sweet guy, and that is Neil Marshall. What, one of the only Geordie filmmakers making it really big, so I just want to give him a shout out for that. For people who are not British, a Geordie is someone from Newcastle on Tyne, um, a city in the north of England, um, which you can actually, I think you see a bit of in, uh, in his film Doomsday. Yeah, that, the, the first time I met him uh, was uh, we were, I was on a set visit in London for 28 weeks later, and a colleague of ours, uh, new, new, new Neil, ended up marrying him down the road. And uh, we met him out at a bar, and I went, oh, your friend Neil, you met Neil, oh, my God, I put it together. I thought it was just some guy, Neil. And I was like, oh, my God, I love Dog Soldiers so much. And he was, like, ready to leave to do uh, Doomsday, like, next week. And he was just all giddy about getting to go do this movie. 
Wow. Um, yeah, just uh, he's the kind of guy who, if you look at him, he looks like uh, somebody you wouldn't even maybe want to start a conversation with. He looks like he might be a tough. Uh, but the minute you talk to him, he's one of the sweetest guys. He's like a big teddy bear. So he, he's uh, really a child of, uh, of the 80s, uh, inspired to become a, a director after watching Raiders of the Lost Ark. He began making films on Super 8, went to film school, co-wrote a film called Killing Time, and then, uh, yeah, as you say, hit it, hit it big with Dog Soldiers. That was his uh, first feature in 2002. Yeah. Big uh, fan of Dog Soldiers. Uh, Sophie, what do you think? I remember seeing it when it came out and just thinking it was like one of the most British films I've ever seen, but not in that way that like, you know, stiff upper lip, the kind of Britishness that we usually export to you guys over there in LA. But really, you know, it could have been about a pack of lads out on the town any Saturday night. There's just been like England have just beaten Germany 5-1 and it just has this incredible sort of manic, masculine energy led by Sean Pertwee. Love him. Pretty dark. It was great actor it wasn't really like anything else that was being made in the UK at the time and I know he sort of really struggled to get people to support his vision um you know all of the films have this kind of shape where there's a group of people who get isolated caught in a situation and then they have to fend off something really threatening and grotesque and but just the way that he he brings you into this group of squaddies like young working class men you don't see those characters a lot like outside crime capers and you really care whether they're gonna make it like i yeah see, that's what i love about horror is like you were saying there are some things in dog soldiers some some slang and some tone and some attitude that like might be a little bit alien to me but i'm watching the film i'm paying attention i'm like Okay, these are a bunch of guys who want to get home and watch a baseball game. That's what that that's what mm-hmm. these guys are. You know, I might not grasp all the slang, but I get it. You know, it's universal. These are just, you know, average Joes who want to get the job done and go get go have some beers. Like, you know, you, that's what I like about it is that it is very much of its region, but it's a universal movie. You don't need to be an anglophile to uh, to grasp the subtleties <laughs> <laughs> that's really interesting to hear because it is a lot of like football and slang and the landscape is really particular and but then it is also just like you know man versus nature and that is obviously a pretty universal story yeah uh, and it's just it's just efficient I, I do think it's a fun efficient i love the score it has some great set pieces the, the characters are funny and it has the whole film has a real kind of wise ass sense of humor to it and then it's a straight horror movie but there is kind of a cockeyed sense of humor that really keeps it afloat i think i think what i love about his first uh two films in particular uh the second being 2005's the descent is that they really feel like like my favorite type of horror film is the one where you feel like you're watching a character drama and suddenly a horror element intrudes upon this this character drama you're watching about these interesting people with this complex problem and yeah, they're, like he he doesn't resort to easy tropes. They're in you know it's not stereotype filled film where everyone gets picked off one by one. You know these are like as you say, I really do care about these characters and what happens to them, and that's before the life threatening horror element is introduced. Yeah, that's a very good point, and it's a simple lesson for screenwriters: is that if you really want to get your audience into a horror story, whether it's a reader or a viewer, I, I think you nailed a really good point, Lee, which is tell a interesting maybe even basic story like a family's going to a carnival and maybe the kid is troubled and the daughter is freshly in love with new beau and the husband and wife are maybe uh, alienated and they might be breaking up there you go with good actors that's a premise right there it doesn't have to be some crazy uh, setup it could you know it's five women who go into a cave 
and go pick the wrong cave and really uh, live to regret it. And, you know, like it's it's the um, like uh, the the insane or the, the horrible in just intruding upon the very basic. Uh, and yeah, so that that's part of why I like those movies, too. My main thought about The Descent was how tempting was it to call that film The Lady Cave? Um, <laughs> it does have some very, uh, very pointed imagery in that film. It does. <laughs> and it's sort of like he, with Dog Soldiers and The Descent, he made the kind of his and hers films, you know, the stag night and the hen night in like the nicest Good possible point. way, like exploring these single gendered group dynamics, which is, is a big thing. Like if you've ever, you probably saw this, Scott, when you were here for Fright Fest, like, the high, the British high street is a very gender divided place on a Saturday night, like big groups of guys roaming around groups of women. But by the story in the descent, like the story about grief, the story about female friendship, it made it so different. Like we've got quite used to this idea of like the strong female character who's generally by herself, but to have a whole group of women at the center of the film and, you know, fending off equally terrifying beings as their male counterparts in, in dog soldiers just made it really fascinating. I'm, I wasn't entirely sure about the American setting of it. Like whether mm-hmm. the American, like you know, the southern, it's southern gothic is going for that, but yeah. it, he maybe felt a bit out of his element with the American setting. I'd be curious to hear your opinion on, uh, because I think it is a very obviously it's a very feminine feminist movie, but clearly written and directed by a man. And I've always wondered, like, what what does a, a female horror fan think of this movie that treats its, I, in my opinion, treats its uh, female characters in in a very frank and fascinating uh, fashion. And I, I remember thinking back in the day, I'm kind of surprised that this was not at least co-written with a woman because these are not stock, simplistic female characters. They're totally not, are they? And I don't know enough about how the film was made to know how much yeah. influence, for example, the, the actors might have had on that. For example, Mayanna Burring, who's gone on to be a much bigger star. You know, how much did he listen to their experiences about female friendship? Or is he someone who just had, you know, a lot of female friends? It's a really popular film with female horror fans. I think it was really very refreshing when it came out in 2005, just the idea of watching women, also not watching women being menaced by men. You know, that's not the obvious threat. Mm. And the idea, obviously, as you say, the very pointed imagery of the cave, it's very womb-like, and it kind of plays with that in a very knowing and aware way. And, you know, maybe we'd been spoiled by seven years of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and we just thought, oh, feminist horror, like, it's a thing now. Maybe we didn't appreciate it enough. Right, right. Maybe now it's just mainstream. (laughs) (laughs) and you know pitch black had just come out like it's that 2000 and it seemed like these kind of strong brave but not ridiculously like cut off concrete not concrete's not the right word strong brave sort of cut off hard ass characters would have to be the only ones you could have female characters who were vulnerable in horror films as well uh, gender politics aside which obviously just adds a really nice icing a layer of icing to the cake because there is some some real meat to chew on there. All that aside, it's just a kick-ass funhouse horror movie. Sure. Mm. Absolutely. I I actually first saw The Descent at a film festival in Queensland in 2006, and when we had to go through the theatre to to get to it, they dressed actors up as the cave creatures, and they had them lurking Ah! in the foyer before the film, and it was kind of scary. The makeup was incredible, and the actors were really convincing, but until we'd seen the film, we didn't quite understand the relevance. So we're sitting in the film... And they actually sent the actors into the cinema at a key moment. Now, I was sitting in the very back row 
with uh, a friend of mine and we were sitting, so the steps were right in front of us, but our eyeline was straight ahead. So my friend didn't see them until they were about a foot away and they loomed right up into her vision. And I, she screamed and jumped about seven feet in the air. And I'm, <laughs> I'm like usually a bit of a cinema purist. I like everything quiet, don't interrupt, etc. But that moment just made the whole <laughs> thing unforgettable, unforgettable and turned what I think was a pretty great film into a really great experience. So I'll always remember that moment. <laughs> that is terrifying. Like I thought it was terrifying that after I saw Return to Oz, there was like a display outside with Princess Mombi's heads <laughs> that all screamed at you. But and I was sick, so let just appreciate the. Whatever you know, what Return to Oz is a legitimately upsetting movie. I'm not. I'm. I'm an old man, and I and, and it's still. Something's off kilter about that movie. So, someone was posting pictures of the Wheelers on Facebook this week, saying like 2018 press photographs from you know Western world countries, and I was like, "Oh, that's so true." It's um, a fascinating movie, though, your listeners. If you're if you're interested in in his, historical bombs, look up, do some reading on Return to Oz, uh, directed by one of the best editors who ever lived, but not uh, not a great director. <laughs> and now, apparently, a quantum physicist. Yes, apparently so. <laughs> really sidelined. <laughs> so back to the cave. But yes, because yeah. Marshall is someone you know who's na- certainly with those first two films, his name got cemented in horror fans' minds. He became a very familiar name for for cinephiles, and he has certainly doesn't appear to have stopped working since Dog Soldiers. But he's actually only made four films, and after the descent, he made, as you say, Scott Doomsday in two thousand and eight and Centurion in 2010, and then has made the move to TV. We can come back to to Doomsday and Centurion in a moment, but I just wanted to mention that, because last month we talked about this in regards to Alison Anders, what happens when a director's favoured genre and style of filmmaking becomes the domain of television. And I suspect what we said about Anders sort of holds true for Marshall, whereas the type of gory horror fantasy he likes is being done on a much larger scale on television. And so we've seen him directing the likes of Game of Thrones and Hannibal, Constantine, Black Sails, uh, Westworld, and I believe the upcoming Lost in Space series. Yep, and I jokingly said to him once that uh, it's like, oh, when the uh, series producers realize that they have like, usually it's the second to last episode where all hell breaks loose and you need to, you know, set the ocean on fire. (laughs) Who do you call? You call in... You call in Neil Marshall. And, you know, I've watched most of the stuff that he's directed for television. Some of the sh- series I really like, like Game of Thrones and Black Sails is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Some of the shows I don't love, well, Hannibal is also great. He's just an interesting director, you know. Uh, he's a, got, kind of got a macho pose, but it's not like an F.U. pose. It's kind of like, he's a tough guy, but he's like winking at you at the same time. You mm-hmm. know, if he continues to do television, great. I hope he has a, a great career and I hope he makes a ton of money. Uh, me, personally, I will always be hoping that he gets back into feature films as soon as possible. Mm. Didn't he direct one of the only Game of Thrones episodes not to come with a nudity warning? <laughs> That's possible. Uh, I'm looking at his IMDb. Think, think he directed uh, Blackwater Walkers and Watchers on the Wall. On the wall. Mm. Yeah. yeah. One of the few not to require you to, you know, chase the children out of the room. Well, chase them out for other reasons, obviously. And yeah, his yes. Westworld episode is quite good. He might, maybe he you know, he got lucky with a great script. I, I, I really loved Westworld. I thought that was a, a really interesting series. Yeah. It was nice to see him his name pop up on that. But, you know, I'm just happy to see his name show up on anything because, you know, lots of good filmmakers kind of just 
you know, get left by the wayside. I, I really that hope that after a while that uh, he's able to make some of the direct some of the movies that he wants to do. But uh, you know, I have a question for you, Scott, um, with mm. with reference to this and what Lee was saying about changing genres and how people then sometimes have changed medium. So quite early on, he got identified, Neil got identified with what was called the splat pack kind of indie movies, which were known as much for working, you know, great stuff with, with ultra low budget as for being ultra violent. And he was interviewed in a documentary about them alongside filmmakers like Eli Roth and, and Rob Zombie. But it seems to me that his films are a lot wittier and a lot more cinematically aware than maybe some of those directors obviously Alex, Alejandro Aja is a, is a really great director as well but do you think that that splat pack sort of initially helped his career and then hurt it as taste changed or you know how how did that position him I, I think that you know it's probably a double-edged sword on one hand you know it's if you make a couple of films and then you're you're grouped in with a bunch of other well-received filmmakers you go, hell, uh, you know, that's a feather in my cap. People like my movies, and they want to put me next to four other good filmmakers. And so certainly that's good. <laughs> On the other hand, you know, now it's, oh, I'm a horror guy. And, you know, for all we know, maybe Neil Marshall always wanted to direct nothing but horror. Or maybe he wanted to be like uh, the late, great Jonathan Demme, who wanted to try something every different every single time out. Mm. But uh, he made two good horror movies, and then, boom, the die is cast. You're the horror guy. Mm. Um you know, so on one hand, it's like, oh, poor you, that's the worst uh, problem to have. But hell, you, nobody wants to be pigeonholed in their job. It doesn't matter if you're actor, director, or, you know, uh, an accountant. Nobody wants to be told they're just one thing. But I'm not a big fan of those buzzwords and, and, and little fancy phrases that come out. I don't like splat pack. I don't like torture porn. To me, you know, horror filmmakers and horror films attach whatever trendy or, or contemporary labels you want Uh you know, if you want to call something torture porn, well, what do you call what Herschel Gordon Lewis was doing in the 60s? That was, for then, that was just as extreme as what, you know, Eli Roth and, and James Wan were doing in their early films. So mm. uh, I think that there's often a derogatory uh, uh, shadow cast towards horror and horror filmmakers that, not, not by you guys, I'm not saying, but I mean, <laughs> in the general media, it seems like, and I, don't, I generally don't like that. Well, it, it, he actually did make a film that wasn't, I, well, you may disagree with this. Uh, it wasn't technically a horror film because Centurion is uh, is is set in the you know during the Roman invasion of, of Britain, uh, based on a based loosely on a true story. What happened to the was it the Ninth Legion or yeah the last le the Lost Legion? I believe it's generally yep it's generally and you know we've gotten uh, there was one recently called the Lo the Last Legion and. You know, this story, I'm sure you get it more than we do over here, but, you know, overseas, this is a pretty common theme. The whole, the lost Roman legion trapped miles behind enemy lines. And will. Mm -hmm. And to me, Centurion looked like Neil Marshall was able to go, hmm, I, I want to do an adventure movie. And this is exactly what I've wanted to do since I was 12, is put a bunch of knights on horses and have them chase each other up a mountain. That You know, that seems like he was just having fun. And I really like Centurion. I mean, it is conventional. Plot-wise, you've seen this movie many times, mm. but the performances are good. It's beautifully shot, and the action is really good. Mm. So, mm. yeah, I dig Centurion. Absolutely. And what a great cast. Michael Fassbender, Dominic West, J.J. Field, David Morrissey, and Olga Kurilowski in mm. what is usually the quite thankless girl role. Um, yes, and she's a badass. In, <laughs> she is monstrous in that movie. She, she wipes this. And, uh, and uh, Mrs. Marshall herself, Excel, as the, uh, as the other, I forget the character's name, but as the other. Yeah. Uh, scary lady. Ah, right. 
<laughs> the other scary lady. Yeah, <laughs> she is, um, that's no, scary, that was really, a scary she-wolf in the film. Oh, well. God, what is her name? Oh, sorry, XL, I forgot her name. <laughs> <laughs> it's a sort of, it's interesting because actually one of those other adaptations, Kevin McDonald's The Eagle of the Ninth, came mm. out the following year with Channing Tatum and Jamie Bell. Same story, but based on a... Exactly. And that I enjoyed that one as well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, an, I'm an easy mark for that story, I guess. I, I like that. I like, just like that whole premise. And it, it definitely felt like it was echoing something that was going on politically with thinking about drawing down the troops in Iraq and Afghanistan and this idea of being, you know, sort of heroes stuck behind em- enemy lines. But Centurion is kind of a, a, a romp where Eagle of the Ninth is really quite grim. Mm. Yes. Yeah, I think that some, yeah, what, yeah, the former was maybe going for more historical veracity, whereas the other was. Look, this is half kind of true and half comic book pulp, you know. And and you mentioned the uh, he, you know, he wanted to put a bunch of knights on horseback and and sort of play with uh, those conventions because two years earlier in Doomsday, he'd sort of done that with, but in a post-apocalyptic uh, sense, he was like, "Yep, society's destroyed. We're going back to knights, or at least this part of the, of England of of the UK is going back to to uh, to." knights on horseback fighting Mad Max style, you know. Uh, I think overall, I, I might get some hate for this. Please don't hate me, Neil Marshall fans. But of the four films, it might be relatively his weakest because it's, it's totally all over the place. But I can't help but admire somebody who, after their biggest hit ever, just comes out and says, now I want to do my John Carpenter movie. Please, just let me do John. <laughs> let me make my John Carpenter movie. I, I, I don't care if it makes money or maybe it will. But I, I, you know, there's, I think there's a lot of love in Doomsday. I think it runs out of steam a little bit before Act 3. But there's a lot of cool stuff in it. It's, it's a fun B-movie. Mm, absolutely. Well, it, de- it definitely struggled to make money. The humor did not translate globally, unlike with uh, Dog Soldiers. But, it, you know, it probably is the only post-apocalyptic Monty Python film. <laughs> I wonder if it, I bet you, I'm, I guarantee you, Doomsday was considered more of a comedy over in, in the UK than over here. It was. Here. Definitely. Um, Although, I, I, you know when the movie lost me? I hate to say this, but the movie lost me. I can take absurd, keep pushing the absurd meter, I can take it. But when you open up, like, a closet in a, in, in a cave and you got these perfectly working cars, I thought, mm. all right, you just pushed the absurd meter past <laughs> yeah, my yeah. deal, and kind of lost me, brother. Um, but, you know, if you love The Road Warrior and Escape from New York, and you want to know what, what, what it would look like if those two movies had cheap, dirty sex and had a baby, that would be Doomsday. <laughs> <laughs> should, we should make clear to people who haven't seen it yet, there is actually a character who wears an eye patch, so this is a very, very specific reference. <laughs> Yes, it is nothing but the love child between Escape from New York and The Road Warrior. And, you know, I, I don't think it, it works all the way through, but I, it, I think the first hour of the movie has enough uh, forward momentum to get it across the finish line. Jeez, how's that for an awful metaphor? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I was also just on a, on a more superficial note, just happy to see uh, Malcolm McDowell appearing, uh, not sharing any scenes with, but appearing in a movie with his nephew, Alexander Siddig. Oh, huh. I did not know that. Yeah, I love that piece of you, trivia. It's uh, you and I do love Rona. Uh, I, I, I I did not know that. That's really funny. And I do love Rona Meters. Not just, I mean, she's, she's beautiful, amazing. of course, but yeah. she's a good. Uh, she's pretty good at the action. I like her. Mm. So yeah. you know, even when the movie gets a little bit, mm, you know, a, a little dreary, she's 
she's badass enough to keep it interesting. I like her. Yeah, yeah. another really great female lead uh, role from Neil Marshall. And so, so, so for you, before we started recording, you mentioned a Neil Marshall project that almost was, yes. uh, which I had not heard of. Yeah, so Sophie, I hope it's the one I'm thinking of. Go ahead. This is the the counter historical. I don't know. Someone can make a Michael Crichton TV series about this, which is the world in which Drive is a film directed by Neil Marshall and starring Hugh Jackman. Wow! That is not what I thought you were going to say! <laughs> that is... Wait, no, 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 you can... Go into more detail on this. I'd like to hear some more about this. That's the detail that I have. In interviews around the time he was doing Centurion, he was saying, oh, my next movie is going to be about a stunt driver by day who's a getaway driver by night. It's going to be played by Hugh Jackman. Oh. No, I, I know that he was working on a a a a, a, a Stoker based uh, screenplay called Last Voyage of the Demeter that would right. take place mostly on that 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 midsection in Dracula that takes place on the ship. Uh, and I thought, oh my God, somebody give this man thirty million dollars to make this movie. I have to yeah. see that movie. And also, yeah, I mean, we'd be remiss. We we've covered his whole career, but we also would do, would be remiss. We want to mention that he did do an, an amusing segment called Bad Seed that you can find in a, an anthology horror film called Tales of Halloween, which is a mixed bag, like most anthologies, but I think Neil's is quite good. So uh, w- what would you like to see him, him do next? I know you said you wanted to see him go back to, to cinema, but is there a, a type of film or a passion project that you, you want to see from Neil Marshall? Uh, you know, a while back, I, I, I had read a novel uh, that was, a, it was actually a, a medieval set adventure story with zombies. <laughs> and uh, I, I just I, I sent him the book and I said, oh, my God, you got to look into this. And he said, oh, it's a fun read. Title of that book. Oh, God, I'm leaving myself a blank. <laughs> uh, but um, and, and, you know, I thought, God, medieval setting with zombies. That's Neil Marshall. But again, that was probably five or six years ago. And, he, and you know, I'd like to see him do anything. I, I, lo- I love the fact that, you know, he does uh, gritty, fun, tough horror movies. He's more than happy to put women in non-traditional roles. Uh, you know, like most filmmakers would have said, oh God, I can't make this movie with all women. Shouldn't, shouldn't mm. I have one guy be their guide or mm. one, one boyfriend has to tag along? But mm-hmm. I, you know, and, and Doomsday as well. I, I just like to see, you know, different, different things in casting and, and he seems to not be beholden to the, uh, the, the Hollywood formula. Mm. Uh, I like to see him, I, look, here's what I wish for Neil Marshall. I want him to make whatever he wants. I wish that he got a blank check in Hollywood uh, because he's a very talented guy. He makes the kind of stuff I like, and he is a class act. But if it was up to me, yeah, he would do like something like maybe the Dread sequel. How about that? <laughs> I want him to come back to the UK, I'm sorry, Scott, and uh, make the Doomsday sequel that he's talked about, except the Doomsday sequel he talked about is already happening. It's called Brexit and the Scottish <laughs> Referendum. So oh, he don't even just like, come yeah, you're, talking to, you're talking to a guy who lives not far from Washington, D.C. Do not talk to me about political misery right now, okay? <laughs> but literally, he could just come and make a documentary right now in the UK. Oh, I don't, yeah, I don't care if he's in Hollywood. Okay, I don't care if he's in South Africa. Anywhere, wherever Neil Marshall works, whatever he makes, I will be in first in line to see it. I love the we guys. We all have work. zombies now. Yeah, yeah. I, I say yeah. this as a fan of The Descent. Uh, a Neil Marshall documentary about Brexit might be too scary. I'm not sure I could get through that. Um, <laughs> Just the conservative government in a cave. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, my God. Well, on that note. That feels like a point to tell people about our next episode. 
Yes, uh, uh, Scott, inspired by your choice of filmmaker, um, next month we are going to be joined by Neil Marshall himself. No way! Yeah, That's he, great. Please <laughs> send him my best. I will. Last time I saw him was in Austin at Fantastic Fest, and, and he, he was warmly welcomed there. Everybody was thrilled to have him in Austin. Excellent. Well, Scott, thank you so much for joining us. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure so very much. Thank you, Lee. Thank you, Sophia. I was very flattered to be invited, and I hope uh, this makes for a good episode. <laughs> I'm sure I it will. I think it will. And we'll see the rest of you next month. <laughs>